Blog Talk Radio. Now that nothing will speak for me Man, I never thought I'd even really 
Good evening, folks, and welcome to another hour of the C. Robert Jones Situation Report with me, your host, Dr. C. Robert Jones, Ph.D. Hey, uh, well, well, first let's take care of our usual, our usual business. Today's date is August first, two thousand twelve. United States of America, planet Earth. Third planet from the sun. Yesterday would have been the 100th birthday of Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, born 100 years ago on July 31st. He did not live long enough to combat the uh, the big government ideas that have formed what I say, uh, what I, what many believe, is the core of Obamanomics. It's perhaps more tragic that our current president, who attended the University of Chicago, or rather lectured there, where Friedman taught for decades, where I attended a Friedman class in economics. It's a shame that o- Obama never fell under the influence of what many consider to be the world's greatest champion for the free market. Imagine, if you will, how much better things would have turned out for Mr. Obama and, more importantly, for the country. Friedman was a constant presence on on these on the, on the stage of economics. Uh, right up until his death in 2006 at the age of 94... And I had the privilege of attending services for him. If he could, I suspect that he would surely be skewering today's $5 trillion expansion of spending and debt in order to create growth. And he would be I also suspect exposing the confederacy of economic dunces, urging more of it. In the 1960s, Friedman famously explained that there is no such thing as a free lunch. If the government spends a dollar, that dollar has to come from producers and workers in the private economy. There is no magical multiplier effect. By taking from productive Peter and giving to unproductive Paul, as obvious as that insight seems, it keeps being put to the test, especially by this president. Obamanomics may be the most expensive failed experiment in free lunch economics in American history and The president seems to be doubling down. Now, a lot of people believe that the president of the United States is a relatively intelligent man. Some even suggest that he is brilliant. I am not one of those people. One either suspects strongly that Obama is either an idiot or that he is purposely wrecking the U.S. economy for the sake of ideology. 
So, we celebrate Milton Friedman yesterday, today, and for as long as we can. Obama is doubling down on ideological, his ideological bent. But equally ideological is the superstition that government can create prosperity by having Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke print more money. In the very short term, Friedman proved excess money fools people with the illusion of prosperity. But the market quickly catches on and there is no boost in output. Just higher prices. And we've seen this throughout history. Next to Ronald Reagan in the second half of the 20th century, there was no more influential voice for economic freedom worldwide than Milton Friedman. Small in stature but giant in intellect, he was the economist who saved (laughs) capitalism by dismembering the ideas of central planning when most of academia was mesmerized by the creed of government as savior. And if you will indulge me just briefly, let's listen to a little bit of what Friedman had to say about the free market system and how there is no free lunch and why. Why soak the rich? Or should we talk about, should we listen to him talk about collectivism? Because that word's been bandied about over the last few months. Collectivism. What does Friedman have to say about that? Let's listen. What is it that produces this consistent attitude of anti-capitalism on the one hand and pro-something called collectivism on the other among intellectuals? One of the most interesting analyses of these problems I know is by a Russian dissident mathematician named Shafarevich. His essay, which has never been published, needless to say, in Russia, But uh, it it appears in English translation in a book called Under the Rubble, which has been edited by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And I strongly recommend that particular paper to you. In it, he discusses the appeal of socialism over the ages. He goes back a thousand or two thousand years. And he comes out with the conclusion that just as Freud pointed to the death wish in individuals as a fundamental psychological propensity, The appeal of capitalism, he argues, I'm sorry, the appeal of socialism and the opposition to capitalism is really a fundamental sign of a death wish for society on the part of intellectuals. It's a very intriguing, (laughs) strange, and at first sight, highly improbable kind of an interpretation. Yet I urge you all to read that essay because you will find that it is very disturbing by having a great deal more sense to it than you would suppose such a position could possibly have. I'm not going to take that line. Maybe he's right. 
But I think there's a very much simpler analysis, a simpler reason for this. And that simpler reason is a combination of a supposed emphasis on moral values and ignorance and misunderstanding about the relationship between moral values and economic systems. I may say the emphasis on moral values is almost always on the part of people who do not have economic problems. It's not on the part of the masses. But the problem with this approach, the problem of trying to interpret and analyze a system, either pro or con, in terms of such concepts as the morality of the system or the humanity of the system, whether capitalism is humane or socialism is humane, or moral or immoral. The problem with that is that moral values are individual. They are not collective. Moral values have to do with what each of us separately believes and holds true, what, what our own individual values are. Capitalism, socialism, central planning are means not ends. They, in and of themselves, are neither moral nor immoral, humane nor inhumane. We have to ask, what are their results? We have to look at what are the consequences of adopting one or another system of organization. And from that point of view, the crucial thing is to look beneath the surface. Don't look at what the proponents of one system or another say are their intentions but look at what the actual results are. Socialism, which means government ownership and operation of means of production, has appealed to high-minded, fine people, to people of idealistic views, because of the supposed objectives of socialism, especially because of the supposed objectives of equality and social justice. Now, those are fine objectives, and it's a tribute to the people of good will that those objectives should appeal to them. But you have to ask the question, does the system, no matter what its proponents say, produce those results? And once you look at the results, it's crystal clear that they do not. Where are social injustices greatest? Social injustices are clearly greatest where you have central control. The degree of social injustice and torture in a place like and in, in incarceration in a place like Russia is of a different order of magnitude than it is in those Western countries where most of us have grown up and in which we have been accustomed to regarding freedom as our natural heritage. Where do you have the greatest degree of inequality? In the socialist states of the world. I remember about 15 years ago my wife and I were in Russia for a couple of weeks. We were in Moscow. And we were, uh, we were going with our tourist uh, guide and happened to see, I happened to see some of the fancy Russian limousines up there, the Zivs. They were sort of a takeoff on the 1938 American Packard. <laughs> and I asked our tourist guide out of amusement, how much do those sell for? Oh, she said, those aren't for sale. Those are only for the members of the Politburo. You have in a country like Soviet Union enormous inequality in the immediate literal sense that there is a small select group that has all of the services and amenities of life and very large masses that are on a very, very low standard of living. 
indeed in a more direct way. If you take the wage rate of foremen versus the wage rate of ordinary workers in the Soviet Union, the ratio is much greater than it is in the United States. On this same trip that we took to Russia, we stopped in Poland, in Warsaw, for a while, and we met there a marvelous man, a man by the name of Edward Lipinski, who was in this country a year ago at the age of 83 or 4, I believe was arrested when he got back to Poland because he had been one of those who had signed and authored a declaration against the suppression of, of freedom of thought and speech in Poland. But at the time we met Edward Lipinski, he was, seemed to be fairly free. He is a, was a man who had been a socialist all his life. And this was really very hard. For, he was now in his 70s, I may say, when we saw him. He was retired. Very hard thing for a man to go back on all of his lifelong beliefs. And so he said as follows to us. He said, you know, he said, I used to believe in socialism. I still do. But socialism is an ideal. We can't have it in the real world, he said, until we're rich enough to be able to afford it. And he said, socialism will be practical when every man in Poland has a house and two servants. And I said to him, including the servants? And he said, yes. <laughs> now, capitalism, on the other hand, is a system of organization that relies on private property and voluntary exchange. It has repelled people. It's driven them away from supporting it because they have thought it emphasized self-interest in a narrow way because they were repelled by the idea of people pursuing their own interest rather than some broader interest. Yet if you look at the results, it's clear that the results go the other way around. If you look, you will find that freedom has prevailed where you've had capitalism and that simultaneously so has the well-being and the prosperity of the ordinary man. There's been more social justice and less inequality. All right, welcome back to the C. Robert Jones Situation Report. You know what? The call-in number is 347-884-8500. I, I, uh, I sometimes wonder why men of this intellect, the intellect of a, and wisdom of a Milton Friedman, why they, why they die? It's irrational, I know, but bear with me. The intellect, the insight, the wisdom, much like our parents, When I sometimes think that when they go, all of that goes with them. But that's not true, is it? Because they leave it with us, and we we pass it on to others. Milton Friedman has left he left a a great body of work. His intellect, his wisdom is there for us. 
All we have to do is tap into it. So we celebrate what would have been on July 31st, the 100th birthday of Milton Friedman, a great intellect, a great man, a great humanitarian, things that we'll never be able to say with a straight face about President Barack Hussein Obama. So, so before we move on to our next topic, I just want to leave you with just a little bit more, just a, just a bit more, just a couple of minutes more of Milton Friedman. Why soak the rich? Why? Why? Uh, why is it we have so many uh, millionaires and everything in the United States, and we still have so many impoverished people who try to get up into the world? Why is it we have this lack of money where people who can't support themselves decently and get a decent job, where all these big men are up on top making oodles and oodles of money, they don't need it. They can only eat that much, eat in a sleep in the bed. And what do you suppose they do it? If they don't eat it and don't, uh, don't use it, what do you suppose they, they do They hoard it. They and what do you mean they hoard it? You mean it. they put it under their pillow? That's right. No. They, they keep investing it. Investing it in That's what? That's right. Yeah. What are they invested in? Well, in oil and everything, where, I mean, all these other people who are What are they invested in? Don't get off the subject. No. What are they invested in? Well, they invested in a lot of uh, different things that the little people need. Well, do they invest it in factories? Yes. Does some of that money end up in machines? Yes. Do those factories and machines provide ordinary working people with jobs or not? What do you suppose the productivity of this country would be and of the, uh, the wage rate would be if the total amount of capital in this country today was what it was a hundred years ago. Where do you suppose the improvements in productivity come from except from the, re the investment by people of their savings? But let me go to your fundamental question. First place, nirvana is not for this world. There is no paradise. Of course we've got a lot of people who are poorly off. But if you look at it over time, if you get a sense of proportion, the well-being of the ordinary people has been the main thing that has been improved by economic progress and economic growth and development. And residual, most residual hard cases of poverty today are the result, again, of a failure of government. Why do we have a teenage, black teenage unemployment rate in 30 to 40 percent? Because of two failures of government. One, a failure to provide decent schooling, which is a governmental responsibility has been, whether it should be or not, it has been. And second, because of a minimum wage rate, which prevents those kids who haven't had decent schooling from getting jobs at low pay at which they can earn the skills on the jobs that would enable them to rise to higher pay. If you look at the sources of poverty, you will find a very most of them are derived from bad, what I regard as wrong-headed government policies. Well, I'm trying to look ahead because I'm Almost going to retire. Yes. And it's pretty Social hard making you go now before, you know, you retire. You're covering a lot of issues here. I might say, if Phil will pardon me, I'm going to cover all of these issues. Yeah, please let's get this plug in because it is an important program, which is, that's all I need. This one is going to compete now with guess who, guess who. He's got his own TV. All right, and we're back. 
So that's our tribute to Milton Friedman. One more. Early this morning when I tuned into Fox and Friends, Fox and Friends first, which is on at uh, on at five. I noticed in the ticker that uh, Gore Vidal passed away. Now, it's true that cocky, I arrogant, self-assured, confident men tend to gravitate toward one another. I number myself as one. It's a reason why Jimmy Johnson, when he was coach of the Dallas Cowboys and he was so cocky and so self-confident, why he appealed to me. Type A appeals to type A. Now, Gore was the elegant, acerbic, all-around man of letters who presided with a certain relish over what he declared to be the end of American civilization. He died Tuesday at his home in the Hollywood Hills section of Los Angeles, where he moved in uh, 2003 after years of living in uh, Italy. He was 86 years old. The cause was complications from pneumonia. Mr. Vidal was, at the very end of his life, an Augustan figure who believed himself to be the last of a of a breed, if you will. And he was probably right. Few American writers have been more versatile or gotten more mileage from their talent. He, um, he wrote... Lincoln, for example, one of my favorite fictorial uh, combination of uh, fiction and history, he was the master of that genre. Never has there been a writer who could blend, weave history with fiction the way he did. Reading his novels, Lincoln, uh, America, New York, Reading his novels made you believe that you were reading actual history. Lincoln happens to be my favorite novel by Vidal. But he also wrote plays, television dramas, and screenplays. And for a while, he was even a contract writer at MGM. He could always be counted on for a spur-of-the-moment put-down or sharply worded critique of American foreign policy. Perhaps more than any other American writer except Norman Mailer or Truman Capote, Mr. Vidal took great pleasure in being a public figure. In fact, he twice ran for office in 1960, and he was the Democratic congressional candidate for the 29th District in upstate New York. I will miss Mr. Vidal. He was... (laughs) When I when I think about some of the interviews that I listened to or watched on television, I, I can't help but laugh. <laughs> uh, he loved conspiracy theories of all sorts, especially the ones he imagined himself at the center of. And he was a famous feuder. He engaged in a, a celebrated on-screen wrangles with Norman Mailer, Capote, William F. Buckley Jr., 
some of all of my favorites. Mr. Vidal did not lightly suffer fools as we all should not. A category that for him comprised a vast swath of humanity, elected officials especially. And he was not a sentimentalist or a romantic. He said, and I quote, love is not my bag. By the time he was 25, he had already boasted of having more than a thousand sexual encounters with both men and women. He was an interesting man, to say the least. Gore Vidal, gone, certainly will not be forgotten. I, for one, will miss Mr. Vidal. Wow. Wow. Okay, now, so we've gotten that out of the way. Let's talk a little bit about economics, if you'll bear with me. Years ago, the freight, the great uh, free market. Well, well, wait a minute now. Wait a minute. Let's let's not do that. Let's not do that just yet. By the way, the call-in number is three four seven eight eight four eighty five hundred. While we while we get set while we get set for our economic discussion when we've got so much going on in the news today we're probably we're going to take uh we're going to take a short break and then we'll get right back you are listening to the C. Robert Jones Situation Report. The call-in number once again is 347-884-8500. Good morning, January 20th, 2017. The last day of Barack Obama's eight years as president. Eight tough years for many as unemployment continues climbing. Debt to China reaching record levels. Some analysts believe the Chinese have overtaken the United States. Eight years ago, we were promised hope. Today, many believe their American dream has been lost. The Republican National Committee is responsible for the content of this advertising. I remember America. Sure, you can still find it on a map. 
nobody older than 20 thinks this is America. Even if coordinates are the same, we've lost our compass. You don't have a direction without reference, a true north. For America, it was liberty. When we lost the love of liberty, our understanding of liberty, it was just a matter of time before the rest of it was lost. Some think it started when the auto companies were nationalized, or the police state to control the internet, or when certain companies couldn't fail because their relationship with politicians made them too big to fail, and the rest of us, without political influence, were too small to succeed. Sure, that all happened pretty quickly, over just a couple of years, but liberty had been gradually devolving for decades. Some of the more astute, like Ayn Rand, saw it about 50 years before others. She warned us. But people didn't believe it could happen here until it did. Laws had been used to loot productive individuals and businesses, but in the new millennium, under Bush and Obama, graft, corruption, and crony capitalism were no longer hidden behind closed doors. The looters and their laws came out of hiding like rabid animals that were no longer afraid of humans. It was brought into the spotlight, and it was celebrated as enlightened economic policy. Ayn Rand asked the question and Atlas shrugged that the rest of us were asking 60 years later. Which failing financial institution will the administration pluck from the flames of crisis? And which will it let roast? Which market or investment technique will the regulators bless? And which, in a capricious change of rules, will it condemn or outlaw? As John Galt said in his radio address, You decided you had a right to your wages, but we had no right to our profits. You called it selfish and cruel that men should trade value for value. Now established an unselfish society where they trade extortion for extortion. People who had never produced or managed anything tried to manage every aspect of our lives, and they brought production to a standstill. And eventually, they decided to micromanage the food supply in the name of fairness, safety, and we all know what happened then. Fiction can be a powerful influence for good or bad. It's too bad more people didn't read Atlas Shrugged. They might have realized where this was heading. Okay, welcome back to the C. Robert Jones Situation Report. Today, this morning started off rather slowly for me. I didn't have much going on. I usually get up around 4, 35 o'clock, and uh, I watch a little bit of Fox and Friends first, and then uh, a couple of hours of Fox and Friends. Sometimes, if things are moving really slow... I'll head on down to the Starbucks, get some coffee, and come on back and watch the rest of Fox and Friends until 9 o'clock. At that time, I'll check after that, I'll check my business ventures and see how they're going, maybe update some web pages, you know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, update my websites and that that kind of thing. But today was really slow, so I decided I was going to go go out to the mall and see the movie the Batman, the latest Batman movie. Now, I'd heard that the movie had somewhat of a socialist bent. There was a lot of Occupy movement um, goings on, a lot of uh, rich, fat cat, kind of Obama-esque kind of stuff happening in the movie. You know, spread the wealth, you know, all of that. So I wasn't overly enthousi- enthusiastic about seeing the movie, given all that. But the truth is, watching the movie, and I won't I won't give anything away for any of you who haven't seen it, 
But actually, the movie speaks to the folly of the Occupy movement. And I'm not sure if Christopher Nolan, if that was his intention, but Wayne Enterprises uh, suffers some uh, setbacks and, well, the movie's still new. I won't give it away for you, but but needless to say, there's an Occupy overtone, not undertone, involved in the movie. They're certainly making a statement. Certainly, after watching the movie, the statement didn't appear to be a positive one. So, I urge you to see the movie and judge for yourself, not so, not just for the entertainment value, but look for the subtle political references, and then some that are not so subtle. There's an an air of anarchy. Do whatever you want. You know, take back your city. There's a 99% thing going on throughout the movie. And it's not pretty. Not at all. Now, Karen has mentioned uh, Chick-fil-A. And I did pass by a Chick-fil-A. And, of course, I went inside. And I bought a ton of goodies. And passed them out to folks while I was standing there. I bought about $150 worth of Chick-fil-A goodies and just started passing them out right there at Chick-fil-A. I was buying folks chow for about an hour. I was a hero of Chick-fil-A for a while. (laughs) It was so cool. Uh, I was hoping to get on the news. But, hey, you know, I was doing it for... uh, for a reason, yeah, and I'm sure you all know what that reason is. Has anyone read Killing Lincoln? Karen Hunter um, in the uh, in the chat room, I have not read Killing Lincoln, although I do have a copy of it here. But I have listened to the audiobook version, and I think, honestly, I would I much prefer the audiobook version because O'Reilly is narrating. And he does so. He tells the story. He doesn't just read the pages. He 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 tells the story, and it's riveting. I have listened to Killing Lincoln just before bedtime. I'll put it on my uh, my iPad uh, and just put and you know, prop it up and and listen to it as I fall asleep. It it is amazing. Please do get yourself a copy. Get yourself a copy of the hardcover, but by all means, please do get yourself an audiobook version. You can get it on iTunes where I got it or audible.com. Check it out. Also, the amateur, that is a prize. You'll learn things in that book. Get the audiobook version like I do. You'll learn things in that book that will startle you about President Obama. And I'm not talking about salacious um, commentary on his birth certificate and uh, or socialism or any of that other, other stuff. For example, I had no idea, and, and nor probably did many of you, that uh, Michelle had actually filed for divorce from Obama 
had the paperwork in hand because she had demanded that Obama not run for uh, Bobby Rush's congressional seat, run against Bobby Rush for his seat. In which time Bobby Rush famously called Barack Obama an educated fool. Well, Obama ran against Bobby Rush in Chicago on the South Side District, from the South Side District, and he lost by a margin of, what, four to one? I mean, he got his ass kicked. And as a result, put he and his family deeply in debt. And Michelle, being the prissy, uh, 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 gotta have all the latest gear, was incensed. She was pissed. So she said that she was going to file for a divorce, and she did exactly that. Obama scurried around borrowing money for other campaigns here and there and managed to pay off a little bit of the debt he owed. And uh, Michelle decided that she was going to let him slide. But, you know, every once in a while, you know, I guess your wife will get so mad at you that she'll she'll say she's going to leave. But (laughs) Michelle had the papers drawn up. Uh, I can't stand the woman myself, but uh, I tell you what, that's just one of the interesting things about the book that you'll find, um, and perhaps uh, on tomorrow's show, I'll play some excerpts from the uh, from the audiobook version, and maybe even some excerpts from uh, Killing Lincoln. You'll, you, you might, uh, you know, you might like it. I, I say go ahead and get a copy. Now, Other People's Money, OPP. I love the the clip from Danny DeVito when he talks about uh, shareholders and all of that. And I was going to play the clip, but we really don't have a lot of time for that tonight. So (sighs) former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher once said that the problem with socialism is that eventually, and I quote, You run out of other people's money. And it's not just tax dollars she's talking about. As uh, the Obama presidency has shown. It takes a decision to force Catholic institutions to provide health insurance coverage for sterilization, contraception, and abortion-induced drugs. When this decision caused an outcry, outrage, Pissed off clergy. Mr. Obama offered the following compromise. Insurance companies will be ordered to provide such coverage free to employees of Catholic churches and organizations. Free. There's that word, that ugly, that ugly, filthy word, free. And why is it so ugly and filthy? Because there's no such thing. Of course this coverage won't be free. Insurance companies will have to pass the cost on to policyholders, including those same Catholic institutions. In short, OPM, baby. Other people's money will be used. 
Another example, to appear empathetic about housing foreclosures, Obama's administration pressured five banks to cough up $25 billion. $3 billion to the federal and state governments, and nearly $22 billion for payments to people foreclosed upon and to reduce the principle of mortgage balances greater than the home's current value. This will bail out no more than 10% of homeowners whose mortgages are underwater, according to an estimate by a nonpartisan policy research institute who notes there are roughly $700 billion in residual negative equity across the country. But the, the political optics are good. The banks can be tarred because their paperwork foul-ups. And the $25 billion isn't from the federal budget. This also constitutes the use of other people's money as well. Paid by all bank customers through bigger fees and higher interest rates. Wonder why... Some banks are charging you three fifty, four dollars for an ATM uh, uh, transaction. I I, bit, I I have been forced to shop around for ATMs. I've gone to ATMs, and there's a three seventy five charge if I want to get twenty dollars. I've had to go from ATM to ATM to just to get one. That'll charge me only two fifty. Fortunately, there are plenty of Walmarts around that have such ATMs. But that's where we are. Other people's money. Now, candidate Obama promised to cut taxes for ninety five percent of Americans. Ninety five percent. But according to the Tax Policy Center, some 76 million Americans who file income tax returns, or 46.4% of the total, don't pay any income taxes. No problem, though. Through 2018, according to the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation, the administration's Making Work Pay program, if it is made permanent, would take $640 billion from people who do pay income taxes and give to those who don't in the form of a refundable tax credit. Can we say redistribution of wealth? In other words, the government will cut them a check. That was once called welfare. But now using other people's money allows Mr. Obama to call it a tax cut. But here's the thing. Obama's still leading in the polls in some places. So somewhere in this great country, this once great country of ours, there are millions of Americans who believe in redistribution of wealth. They believe that it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> what has happened to this country? What's happened when nearly half of all Americans believe in what Obama believes? 
10 years ago. 10 years ago, Mr. Obama wouldn't have even made a dent. 10 years ago. By the way, 2020 Radio Network, G-Ski Rocks, and The Captain. Coming on just after my show. Please do tune in. His show is fantastic. It's informative. It's funny. And it's informative again. And then it's funny some more after that. I mean, when you've got humor, intellect, information, all wrapped up into a really cool uh, ball... You got you gotta you gotta partake, baby. You gotta be there. You just got to. So tune into his show. It's really great. It comes on right after mine on here on Blog Talk Radio, G Ski Rocks twenty twenty radio network with uh G Ski and the Captain. You got you gotta dig it. Well, tonight's been a slow night. Not much going on. And we've got a lot of news, uh, but uh not much of it worth talking about. Obama speaks with world leaders while holding a baseball bat. I don't know why that's news. Israel prime, Israel's prime, prime minister says that time is running out to stop Iran. We think he might, uh, you know, pull the trigger. As I stated, Gore is gone. Today has been a very slow news day. There's a couple that's been arrested because uh, they were having sex inside a Walmart. Small business owners blast Obama for you didn't build that, saying that Obama can kiss their ass. <laughs> A Colorado business owner speaks out on Obama's business comment. <laughs> That's not going away at all. I'm a <laughs> it's not going away. You didn't build that. We're I told you we're gonna be dining out on that for the next uh the next six months. I mean, even after I have had I've got t shirts printed up, baby. I've got t shirts, ball caps, I'm gonna have all of these things on Gojo Media's website, Golden Jones Universal Media. Check out the new website that's coming in the next couple of weeks. I'm gonna have a completely redesigned uh, Gojo Media, uh, Golden Jones Universal Media website. Uh, it's going to be on the order of what Red State looks like, but certainly a lot more, a lot, a lot classier. Red State has a really great website, but certainly won't be anything compared to mine. And I hate to even, uh, I gave, a, I actually gave a web, Red State a, a promo just now. I didn't really mean to do that, but nevertheless. My website's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. I'm going to give it to you as soon as uh, as soon as it's up and running. But we're going to be selling you didn't build that t-shirts, ball caps, all of it, and uh, we're going to be giving some stuff away too. Got a lot of giveaways coming from the website. If you uh, click on uh, the website and click on a couple of ads, just click on some ads, and uh, you know I'll send you some of the gear that's coming out. We've got books, we've got DVDs. Um, you got a lot of things coming in the works in the next couple of weeks. 
for the um, Golden Jones Universal Media. Uh, but nevertheless, we need to hide all this from Obama because, you know, he's going he's gonna to want to take some of my bread so he can give it to somebody else. Well, folks, we are running out of time, so we're going to park company right now, head over to G-Ski Rocks after this. And um, But I'll leave you with uh, Margaret Thatcher on socialism, and then we'll check out and head on over to G-Ski Show. Thank you, folks, for listening. I know you've got plenty of things that you could be doing, but you chose to, to take the time to tune in which I greatly appreciate. God bless you. God bless the United States of America. You have made this show a big hit. You know, when I first started the Blog Talk Radio show, I had two listeners, just two for a very long time. Beach Bum was one who has since passed on, and I miss him a lot because, uh, you know, he was uh, he was a consistent listener. And then there was Tesla, and uh, those two were perennial um you know, folks in my chat room, they would listen to the show when uh, there was no one else. And and now I'm up to nearly 200,000 uh, listens, and and folks are listening to me all over the world, and I really do appreciate that. You guys are great. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be heading out of here. Have a great night. God bless you. Hi, God bless the United States of America. There is no doubt that the Prime Minister has in many ways achieved substantial success there is one statistic that I understand is not however challenging and that is that over her 11 years the gap between the richest 10% and the poorest 10% in this country has widened substantially how can she say at the end of her chapter of British politics that she can justify many people in a constituency such as mine being relatively much poorer, much less well-housed, and much less well-provided than it was in 1979. Surely she accepts that is not a record that she or any Prime Minister can be proud of. Mr. Speaker, all levels of income are better off than they were in 1979. But what the Honourable Member is saying is that he would rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That way you will never create the wealth for better social services as we have. And what a policy. Yes, he would rather have the poor poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That is a liberal policy. Yes, it came out. He didn't intend it to, but he did. I give way to the, the honourable gentleman. I'm extremely, I'm extremely grateful. The, the, the Prime Minister is aware that uh, I detest every single one of her domestic policies and have never had that. And I think that the honourable gentleman knows that I have the same contempt for his socialist policies as the people of East Europe who have experienced it have it for that. I think I must have hit the right nail on the head when I pointed out that the logic of those policies are they'd rather have the poor poorer. Once they start to talk about the gap, they'd rather the gap were that. <laughs> Down here. That. Not that. But that. So long as the gap is smaller, so long as the gap is smaller, 
said, rather have the poor poorer. You do not create wealth and opportunity that way. You do not create a property-owning democracy that way. Keep the devil. 